Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Coraline. This show was a commission for Joel Robinson, one of our very favourite people. And we are pretty sure you're going to enjoy this one, Joel. An ancient evil from another dimension spins a web of illusions to make itself very appealing and lure children to its lair to feed upon them. It's up to some interesting and intrepid kids who are used to being ignored by grown-ups, at least one of whom has lost a family member to the beast, to face their fear and take the fight to this merciless entity in order to wrest life and family from those twisted jaws. Does this sound familiar yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I, d- I don't know. I was just like potter around with the uh, description and I thought oh you know what this applies to as well this was originally a book by Neil Gaiman writer of the Sandman comics now I can't believe we've taken 10 years of podcasting to actually talk about Neil Gaiman at least one of his properties in depth in many ways he has been extremely influential on my own writing and I straight up love the movie adaptation of his book Stardust and the version of Beowulf co-written by him Those two and Coraline came out at a time when he was going through something of a new renaissance in terms of his work being in the public eye. And now with American Gods and Good Omens and the constant looming threat of a Sandman movie where we finally get to see how Hollywood can fuck up the endless. And they will. Because they will. It's safe to say that Gaiman is back in vogue again if he ever left. This is an extra special movie, however, because it was the first full Leica production to be followed over the next few years by Paranorman and Box Trolls and their current pinnacle, Kubo and the Two Strings. We've already discussed Leica at length in the Kubo show, but I have been assured in the interim that while the Leica films are never hugely profitable, they have a self-sustaining sensibility and financial system that means that unlike Image Movies Digital, they're not looking around to be bought up and shut down. I pray that this assessment is accurate because I would deeply love to get a new Leica film every few years for the rest of my life. Their armature doll pictures are the very best of that particular branch of animation. They rival and frequently surpass Pixar, Studio Ghibli and Disney at their best in terms of vividly realised and distinctive worlds, wonderful characters and lyrical storytelling. The short version of Coraline is that a young girl moves into a new place with her boring, disappointing parents, finds a way into an alternate universe and a mirror of the same house with an other mother and an other father who are interesting and exciting and have buttons for eyes and want her to stay forever. Fairly soon, she smells a rat, and it becomes a quest to recover her real parents, who have been taken and held captive by the other mother, this malevolent female overlord, the Beldam. Side note, by the way, I always thought the Beldam was spelled B-E-L-L-E space, new word, D-A-M-E? Yeah, so did I. The Beautiful Woman. Mm. Because she is. But Dam without an E is um, a word for an animal's mother. Mm. And... um, Oh, really? Bell could be ascribed to the sun god. Hmm. 
It's also a very spooky word, but I'm sure Gaiman had his reasons. I hate I hate ascribing reasons and then having the creator go, well, it was just a fun word. Yeah, I, I, I try not to. Once I've come up with really good interpretations of things, I try not to read Don't what look. the author it's intended. It's potential. Leave it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't spoil my ideas. <laughs> so really, the devil is in the details. Sharon and I are asking one another, what did we notice about each major moment in the story? Now, I've actually gone uh, the further mile and read the book, which was a lot easier to get through than it. The book is really whip quick. I read it in a it's couple of hours. It's also quite thin, isn't it? Yes, it's quite thin. I'd like all books to be like that. No, that that's a lie. That's a complete lie. I love that like, there are some books that are just so wonderful that when you get to the end, you're like, oh, oh, what else has this person written? God damn it. Like, it, to be fair, it for me was that. I was like, I want something else that rivals it, written by Stephen King. Yeah, I have never read anything by Neil Gaiman that was a drag. Never. I really didn't like his version of Stardust. And uh, I do. I prefer the movie. I actually, re- I prefer the movie adaptation, but I, I liked the book as well. Sometimes, uh, and Coraline was a case for me with this. Um, the reading Gaiman's work after the fact, when someone so beautifully, vividly realised it, we're going to talk about Stardust at some point. Maybe in a double bill with the Princess Bride, like not in the same show, but like two in two weeks in a row. Mm. Um, but Stardust, when I went back to the book, it felt very flat and very small and old and ugly and dark and nasty. When I went back to the Coraline book, it felt flat and dull and old and twisted and nasty and lacking in that beautiful, tangible, expressive, edible colour in this film, I'd, if that makes sense. One thing I would say about Neil Gaiman, I think you've, you've kind of hit the, head, hit the nail on the head a little bit there. He is, he is a very descriptive writer... I would not call him a very visual writer. Mm. He doesn't write things that you really want to see. The words are incredibly artistic, and I love the way his words feel in my head when I read them. Mm. But that's what creates the images, and words are black and spiky and, and can sometimes be cold. Also, I'm able to see that even though uh, um, I don't massively get on with his words, like I, I found Sandman really difficult to read, mm. I am incredibly I respectful of... Gaiman himself and really pleased that he's clearly been such an inspiration on other writers and work mm. that I have then gone on to love. So it's it's kind of like Francis Ford Coppola. Mm. Not a massive fan of him myself, not a massive fan of The Godfather, it insists upon itself. But um, I, mean, I, I actually like The Godfather, it's, it's, it's a damn good movie. It's not the best movie ever made, stop saying that. But, um, <laughs> you know, but... Um, the, the fact that Coppola has made so many films, like, has made a couple of films that have inspired so many, mm-hmm. make Coppola like a linchpin of the uh, the directorial art. Yeah, and combined with the right other um, co-creators, I think that mm. can really make something magical. I think one of the reasons that, that you love Good Omens so much is because Pratchett is a very visual, colourful, yeah. vivid writer, and combined with Gaiman, they, they really created something fantastic with that. Yeah. Also, Gaiman feels like a, a writer who's still got plenty in him. You know, he's he's uh, he's great in interviews. He's very sparky. He's still very creative, and he likes to be hands-on with the productions so, rather than just um, like take a back seat. One of the major issues with the Golden Compass that we discussed last week, Philip Pullman went, "Yep, yeah, sure, send me a check. I want nothing to do with this," and that's absolutely fine. He has no interest in movies in particular, but because of that, there was no oversight. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between that and Steve Clovers calling Joe on the phone every day to go, "Right, there's a scene with a graveyard in Azkaban. Can we?" No, apparently, no we can't do the scene with the graveyard because that turns up again later. Mm. It's 
the hands-on approach to yeah. adaptation. But you're not telling me that if they turned up with a production team who sat down with Philip Pullman and talked about the book in depth and get, demonstrated massive understanding of the themes... That he wouldn't have been and pleased. Talked about, that yeah. he wouldn't have turned around and gone, this is going to be pretty great and I would like to be involved mm. in this. But like I said, he was a gentleman. He was kind of like, well, you, you do your movie game, I'll be over here. You know why, don't you? Why? Because his publisher told him, take the check and run. Take the check and run. The same publisher who said, Golden Compass, I love it! There are some uh, different, like, major differences with the, uh, the, the novel. Gaiman himself mentioned on the um, extras that if you just filmed Coraline as the book, it would be about 48 minutes long. It's, they, they flesh out a lot more. Specifically, at the beginning, you get a lot more time to get to know Coraline. So they, there's a certain amount of interpretation of his character. They've sort of made her a bit more um, vibrant for, for the kids in particular. And also you get to see a lot more of her British behaviour. They kind of launch in and Coraline's just this dreamy girl, a bit like Alice. Obviously, there's, there's direct and intentional parallels there. Uh, but in the film, she's an oik. She's a git. She's really tiresome and petulant. So like, if you're watching it as parents, you're like, yep. And if you're watching it as kids, you're like, yep. <laughs> parents suck, am I right? So that's a great unifier of uh, a movie. Um, why be? is entirely new for the movie. This is a, a little boy who Coraline befriends who's a little bit... He's, he's very sweet, but he's a little bit weird and he's a little bit shifty and you're not entirely sure whether he's a goodie or a baddie and then uh, he proves his worth throughout the movie. And really, this... I said kids, plural. It's m almost entirely Coraline doing the intrepid stuff. But YB shows up at some key moments to pull her ass out of the fire and to lend her a... literally lend her a hand at one point. <laughs> The voodoo dolls, spies, they aren't in the book. They mention Coraline has dolls at the end, um, and she has like a doll tea party. I'll mention that in a second. But um, the whole Beldam creating voodoo dolls and then sending them back out into the world was a creation of Laika. And I love that as an aspect of the movie. And it's it's not in the book. I didn't really miss it that much because it's a very visual thing. There's something very kind of like, all you have to do is show the doll and everyone goes, ugh. Which is, you know, great. But at the same time, there's this weird kind of like, it's creepy and spine tingling, but you've got to appreciate the artistry and craftsmanship. Absolutely. And the fact that it's a real genuine doll with like a little armature puppet inside it itself uh, makes that um, more apparent. You know, I was thinking, why would you need a puppet inside that? It just sort of hangs limp all the time. Because in all the stop motion, you have to ensure that it maintains the hanging limp. You have to hold it limp firmly, if that makes any if sense. If it shifts position, then it yeah. looks like it's, it's moving vibrating. itself. It's vibrating. Like, because <laughs> it's hanging limp all over the place. Indeed. Um, it's the the other mother, when she goes into the other world, um, the film goes to great lengths to make that world super appealing. You know, it's got that lovely welcoming music and the gorgeous gardens and the, you know, Narnia-style food. Uh, well, actually, it's more Harry Potter than Narnia, and just in terms of sumptuousness. Mm. Um, like, Joe Rowling's... Like, it doesn't make sense that Joe Rowling would paint such pictures of food in our heads when we're like, honestly, I can just go down to Tesco's and get something approximating this, when the whole point of Enid Blyton was rationing the war. You can't get hold of these things. Absolutely. And yet... Boarding school, d dining hall food... And Bad. yet Rowling, Rowling is a pro at that exact thing. But ultimately there's a lot of gorgeous, like they even mention in the book that Coraline has never eaten or never eats her parents' uh, chicken because her dad does um, recipes. So Coraline doesn't like recipes because her dad is 
like experimental and not a particularly good cook, so she she mistrusts anything that's not out of a packet. You she put lives crackers on, in the casserole. It's disgusting, but uh, putting crackers in a casserole is a thing that Americans do. Mm. But um, casserole in general is uh, terrible you and a war like crime, and you I, shouldn't make I, it. I really like sausage casserole. I would like to put an end to all casseroles, but then again. I understand that everyone else likes them and they're crazy and that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but here's the thing. Coraline would live off microwave pizzas. I don't know whether I'd... If I had to choose between casserole or microwave pizzas, I'd, I think I'd say, if I can cook the casserole, casserole. That would be my, my suggestion. But uh, yeah, so she's, she's living off of packet stuff. In the book... It's like a darker, shadowy place, and she's just happy to get some attention. Like Gaiman makes no real concession to the fact that this is a really welcoming place, and the Beldam is fucking hideous from the word go. Like she's creepy and tall and spiny and has long skeletal hands, and it's like, at what point are you not running for your life here, Coraline? Coral? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, to, to you're absolutely right. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to tempt a child with an adult. You can kind of understand somebody meeting the incredibly scary trade your soul for this particular reward demon mm. and it looking appallingly obscene yeah. like uh, Death Note for example yeah. you're making a deal with a thing that literally has just admitted to you that it's a demon out of hell it's a really bad idea here. Yeah, um, but you can kind of understand why somebody with an adult's perception on the world would do that mm. a child needs to be tempted yeah. that's why it needs to seem like a good Pennywise deal Pennywise has a well, it's a really bad impression of something that's appealing to a child. The but dancing clown. Yes, but he's trying, bless him. <laughs> yeah, but it's dated. But, I mean, ultimately, the, the other mother thing, like this good home-cooked food, but in a jazzy way that makes it really exciting, and the mango milkshake. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, not just, it's not even the only milkshake there. There's a rack full of milkshakes that she clearly made before she even, Coraline even asked. There's a lime one. That basically made me think of Lyra with the um, racks of um, free refill drinks that yeah. she could have anything she wanted but that's the thing refill drinks are just soda and syrup sitting in tanks waiting to be poured mango milkshake if you don't drink it straight away it's gonna separate mm, this is true I, I made her a mango milkshake while we were watching the commentary oh, earlier today awesome do you know what that really made me think of though right cast your mind back to when you were a kid yeah and you went to a friend's house yeah. and they served you food yeah. that you never had at home yeah didn't it feel magical yeah yeah it did <laughs> and didn't you think, on occasion, if I lived here, I could eat this all, all the, time. the time? And you didn't know that they were basically putting on the posh food to uh, impress you. <laughs> and as soon as you were gone, they were putting on turkey Twizzlers. <laughs> See, now turkey Twizzlers was the posh food that I got to have at other people's houses, but I wasn't allowed at home. You're not allowed Bernard Matthews? No, not generally. Good lord. What did you eat? Um, Mango milkshake? Honestly, as a, as a young child, my mum was a bit laissez-faire about dinners because we had uh, cooked meals at school. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the first few years of, of my child life, I basically lived on peanut butter sandwiches, bananas and glasses of milk. <sighs> Do you have some cheese with that? Um, cheese came later. Cheese came later. Because mm. she's like a giant mouse. She's always wandering around with a block of cheese in her hand. It's, right, okay. She There's a like, reason for that. She can't go five hours without eating cheddar. I, right, what do we have in this house that I can snack on? That's that I point. can just pick up and eat without needing a knife and fork and a pan? Well, you can't eat Wheatos. And you can't eat Wheaties. Weedabix. Wheat flakes. I can't have sandwiches. I can't have cake. I can't have um, most cereal bars. 
She I'm very has, limited in terms of convenience snacking. She has a wheat intolerance, which basically means that... Uh, no, I have, have celiac disease. That avenue of pleasure of me cooking a meal that we could all eat ended a few years ago and will never return unless I cook a meal that we can all eat that doesn't have any wheat in it. Which I... You tell me what you want to cook and I will give you a wheat-free version of the recipe. But your wheat-free versions suck! All of that stuff made with rice meal is gross! You were quite lucky when we went to America. Some places no, were written. No, you weren't. really. God, that woman was so fierce with you. She was. You were just like, you were in Taco Bell and you were like, I just, I have a wheat intolerance. She was like, wait, I don't want to hurt you, Missy, but I will. No, she said, she I don't. say that. I don't want to give you anything. I don't want to make, make you sick. sick. That was yeah. it, yeah. Okay. okay, fine. Just tell me what's got wheat in it then. It's fairly straightforward. Making up a song about Coraline. She's a pal of mine She's as cute as a button in the eyes Of everyone who ever laid their eyes on Coraline When she comes around exploring mom And I will never ever make it boring Our eyes will be on Coraline Okay, so the book is um, the book is a lot more repulsive and shadowy And uh, the, the ghost bit in, when she finds the ghost children Is a lot more drawn out and really creepy Because these kids... All of their like minds are circa adjusted for the Victorian era, and like she's feeling around in the dark for what? Moondial. Moondial. Yeah, it does feel a bit like Moondial. Um, and she's feeling around the dark, and she can feel like the cold, dead face of a child, and it's like, oh god, this is like not. I mean, it's not so much not child appropriate, but it's like nightmare inducing. Um, I think they handled that again uh, with a nice balance in the film where it's creepy, especially as they, they um, reduce the frame rates of those ghosts from uh, four frames per second to just one frame per second. So they have that staccato uh, imagery uh, to them. Uh, there's also a point when she loses her parents, um, she calls the police to ask them, you know, says her parents have been taken away. And the policeman goes, oh, toy, 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 toy. You're best off having a hot chocolate and, and, you know, getting your mother to tuck you in. And she's like, I don't have a mother. She's been taken away by a demon. And he's like, yes, yeah, hot chocolate's the thing for this. And I, know, I was looking very carefully. There is a hot chocolate in the um, Beldams. When the Beldam is making her that lovely omelette with the bacon and they're making the deal, there is a lovely hot chocolate with cream and sprinkles on it uh, there as a little nod to that, a little visual nod. Um, there's also, and this is probably the most important thing, that really would have been good in the movie. And I think it, that's this is the only thing that feels like a loss. Um, and... Henry Selleck talked about it was in every version of the script and they eventually took it out and never filmed it because um, movies are like real life without the boring bits and animated movies are like movies without the boring bits, which basically means two people in a room talking to each other takes ages to animate. So we got to cut to the chase. And so people can't soliloquize. They can't talk about things. And that's a shame, and that is one of the drawbacks of Like It, because doing, like, out, having these characters talk is going to take six months. When Coraline was out walking with her father, she remembers this and she's telling... I don't think she tells YB, because YB doesn't exist. I think she just talks, tells herself this. YB exists in the film, so she's not just talking to herself the whole time. Um, or maybe she tells the cat. She was walking with her father, and then her father um, shoved her forwards up the hill and uh, said to run, 
and um, he uh, said he'd come running after her and as she ran she felt a terrible pain in her arm then her father came thundering after her and she was scared but then they got to the top and carried on and it turned out that they'd stepped in a wasp's nest that was in a rotten tree branch wasps had swarmed out and started stinging her father and he told her to run because if he ran as well the wasps would go after both of them and then they would both be stung a lot so her father stood there taking the stings and then eventually when he bolted he dropped his glasses and had to go back to get his glasses again later and face the fear and that Coraline realized was a perfect example of the kind of sacrifice that it takes to be a parent Mm, that her real father would make for her but her other father couldn't because he is empty yeah and um, it's it's a lovely bit, and like like I said, this you know I was watching Lego Ninja Go, and you can check out the Ninja Go uh, quick review for exactly how not to do this level of self sacrifice in a movie. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a really nice um, uh, moment in the book, and it was worth reading the book just for that. Mm. There's plenty of nods to that in the film, though mm. the poison oak on her hands, and the um, all the insects that attack her in the garden. Yeah, but. Like that's just nods to the bees being uh, aggressive and not nods to the self-sacrifice of the yeah. parents. Yeah. Um, but you get the impression that her uh, her parents are actually much better than the way she paints them at the beginning. Mm. And at the end of the book, um, Coraline, um, like I said, she starts a tea party with her dolls to lure in the hand and then she puts the blanket directly over the well and the hand jumps to get the key and uh, she jumps away and then the hand falls down the well with the key. Did they say in the film that if you stood at the bottom of the well in the broad daylight and looked up, you would see stars? Yes. Because that's a really good line. That was in there, I believe. She pretends to be a child and have childish things and this this tea party, but she's very wise to the beldam here. And ultimately, the end of the movie, the end of the book, is a coming-of-age situation. Coraline is trapped in the middle. She's being uh, babied by her dad, who's just sort of like, you know, go go away, do these things, count these things. And, like you know, he still doesn't really comprehend that she's growing up. Well, he's her- trying to keep her busy and keep her entertained without really grasping what she yeah. needs to keep her entertained. And her mother is treating her like a grown-up already. She's like, you know, Coraline, these are the responsibilities, these are the stuff we have to do. And Coraline finds it tiresome because she doesn't want to be a grown-up, so she's stuck in the middle. Now, at the end of the book, Gaiman... Gaiman's words say that Coraline realises that summer is coming to an end which is a lovely lyrical way of, uh, of, of re-observing that your something of, of you is now going to have to be shut away um, if you want to proceed which is it kind of feels like Monster House the way that at the end of that of that movie um, they go can we go trick-or-treating one last time because they're now too old for, for to be scared on Halloween Um and uh, you know it's it's a it's a nice story, and the way the movie wraps up, it's a wonderful story. So it's like it, they they took this basic book and then they made it lush and verdant, and um, it's also the bridge between James and the Giant Peach, which is the last thing Henry Selleck did without Leica, and that was way back in like the um, uh, the nineties. He did that, and. Uh, yeah, it would have been like 96. Uh, the, the, the best way I could describe Coraline, this applies to a lot of Leica films, um, but specifically to Coraline, in two words, is simply that it has a twisted sumptuousness. Like it's creepy and curly, but very pleasing to look at if you're of a certain disposition. Which, I mean, possibly accounts for the fact that not enough people are of that disposition. They just happen to 
to sort of fit into that category. But the ending of the film is that Coraline is serving everybody lemonade uh, that she's made herself, so she's now diligent and she's working hard. And then she's got her parents working on the garden, which is something that they said they wouldn't do. Like they were, they write gardening catalogues, but they don't actually garden. They don't like dirt. They don't like. Um, you know, getting into it. And, and so they're doing something creative. So she's motivating them to creativity. Oh, they, she's gotten Miss Spink and Miss Forcible out of this mausoleum to their previous careers to stop talking about, ah, I used to be on the stage. And, and actually, you know, get out and hang around in the garden and be sociable with other people. And uh, Mr. Bobo, uh, who was, you know, in, hiding up in his attic, talking constantly about this parade of mice that we never actually see is down planting beets and she gets YB in and he brings his grandma in and she brings people together and this is Coraline awakening herself to what she's able to do and she's grown exponentially for her adventure. It's a great ending and it expands upon Gaiman's original book. Okay, so now we're going to talk about each individual section. And we'll start with the sewing of the doll in the intro sequence. Things that we noticed about that. Mm. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that hit me was how long it took me to notice that it was needle fingers making the doll. Mm. Because I was so focused on the doll itself <clears throat> um, that the, the process of construction just kind of escaped me initially. And then I saw the hands and it was like, oh my God, it's the bell down. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, but what really hit me while I was watching this, um, and it was something to do with um, what we saw them talking about in the behind the scenes stuff. The idea that everything Leica do, um, they're very focused on texture. And the it's not so much the reality of things, it's... It's really difficult to put a finger on, but the the idea of art that you can feel. Yeah. Tangibility is always the word. Absolutely. Everyone says grittiness. Mm. I think a lot of the time they mean tangibility. Yeah. So like when you can you, reach out and touch it. When you look at something and it's wet pavement and it, it feels in your head like wet pavement. Yeah. And you look at... Um, a jumper that's been knitted and you can see the ribbing and it feels knitted in your head even though you're not actually touching it it feels like you could the fabric sorry in Coraline fabric is what paper is in Kubo mm. Mm. they use it to create a world that looks like dolls because everything looks and feels like it's made out of fabric mm. And all of the outfits were sewn and put together by this one woman who specialised, uh, before they found her, in making dolls' clothes, making small clothes for dolls. And so she had, they have this quality about them. Uh, like, you know, you can actually sense a certain scale about what you're watching mm. and think to yourself, well, these guys are probably about a foot high. And you'd be right. Mm, yeah. But things like the um, when she comes over the hill and you see the Pink Palace... That the the building looked to me like it should be stitched onto a duvet. Does that make sense? Mm, mm. And everything sort of had this very um, chunky creativeness about it. Like a person who was particularly good with a needle and thread could make everything here. And the opening with the stitching of the doll really seemed to emphasise that. Also, it's them making Coraline. Yeah. 
Uh, additionally, did you notice the fact that she doesn't just make the doll from scratch? Another doll floats through the window. She takes the doll apart and uses its component parts to make a new one. Effectively, that other doll is one of those three ghost children. She's had, an, she's had her fill of that one. She recrafts the Coraline doll, sends it out to be a spy. It's bone chilling if you think about what the Beldarm actually is. I mean, she, like, the, my comparison to it is not far off. Well, she keeps a... saying, you know, I want to love you, I want you to love me, but ultimately she's feeding on them. Mm. And also there is a, um, a sequencing to them as well. If the, the previous child was Wybie's grandmother's sister, mm-hmm. then that would put it at maybe, what, 60, 70 years ago? Mm-hmm. And then presumably the uh, little boy was some years before that. Yeah. And then the pioneer girl was some years before that. Jesus. So yeah, it, uh, the Beldarm feeds every 60, 70, 70 years. years. or so, yeah. Huh. Also, there's, there's no clue as to how old the Beldarm is. And everything about the environments that she puts together for Coraline like she's a she's a magnificent weaver uh, of these dreams and and you know she can put together something that that's extremely appealing but there's always something off about it there's like the the button eyes are a wonderful shortcut to making you go I can't make eye contact with these things I was watching the um and if you go swimming with bare-legged women sequence and I was thinking have they got button eyes and I looked really closely because they were heavily lidded. And I thought, well, no, they're just normal. Oh, no, wait. Those buttons are painted to look like they're heavily lidded, but they're still button eyes. That was, um, that was, that was deceptively good. Conversely, when you see her regular parents, what you're basically getting is a, a very hefty taste of real-life mundanity just wandering around a house and it's boring and both your parents are working and everyone's got something to do but it's not a particularly fascinating something and it's just like that's it's too much real for most cinema goers frankly they're willing something exciting to happen there's two moments as well that um that struck me particularly that were done in a very subtle way Coraline's mother says she'll go shopping for groceries when they get the catalogue finished. Mm -hmm. When they go out to get Coraline's uniform, which she needs for school and is a must-have, she says without even thinking that she can't have the gloves. Mm -hmm. And she's relented on that by the end. I think they've run out of money. I think the house move and the fact that they've been working on this catalogue for obviously what is a long time Mm -hmm. means that whatever money they got from the last project they did is starting to run out. And until they get this sold, they can't buy groceries. They can't buy her things that are non-essential. You could stay here forever, if you want to. Really? Sure, we'll sing and play games, and Mother will cook your favorite meals. There's one tiny little thing we need to do. What's that? (laughs) Well, it's a surprise. For you, our little doll. Black is traditional, but if you'd prefer pink, or vermilion, or chartreuse, though you might make me jealous. No way! You're not sewing buttons in my eyes! Oh, but we need a yes if you want to stay here. So sharp you won't feel a thing. Ow! There now. It's your decision, darling. 
We only want what's best for you. I I'm going to bed. Right now. Bed? Before dinner? I'm really, really tired, yeah. Uh, I just need to sleep on things. Well, of course you do, darling. I'll be happy to tuck you in. Oh, no thanks. Uh, you you've done so much already. You're welcome. <gasps> and I... We aren't worried at all, darling. Soon you'll see things our way. Another thing. It's really subtle, but you can read so much into it. Um, Mel, which is the name of Mother, um, has a neck brace on. She's been in a car accident. That accomplishes multiple things. It accounts for why they don't have the money they planned for, because it had to go on medical bills. No one ever says that, but when you've been in a car accident, and you're American, and they are, that can be a sudden drain on thousands and thousands of dollars. And that's why you end up with a ketchup mustard salsa wrap. Mm, yeah. The idea, by the way, of putting mustard and salsa together is barbaric. And uh, Mustard and salsa or mustard and ketchup? Well, mustard and ketchup's fine. Okay. You can put that on a hot say, dog. I was going to say, yeah. That's... A lot of people are like, ketchup on a hot dog? But no, that's, that's fine. Mustard and salsa, though. Well, it's two different kinds of spicy. Yeah, that's, that's just wrong. But the other things are um, that it means that Mel has been hurt and isn't complaining about it. She never makes note of that. She never goes, oh, I can't because of this. But it also means she's not going to take any risks. She's not going to do what kids would consider to be fun activities because she has to keep her head straight and she has to keep her body straight and she has to basically sit and do work and that's it. So it's a wonderful way of like restricting her and at the same time telling you a little story about her. It's fantastic um, costume dressing. Terry Hatcher does a phenomenal job on voicing two, three very distinct versions of the same effective character. Just regular Mel, mum who is harangued in there and that just feels very natural. But then other mother, she skirts the line between being like so perfect that your flesh crawls like a, a Stepford wife um, and at the same time really genuinely appealing like what you know especially at the very beginning when she first turns up she's so warm and inviting that you kind of want this to be true mm. she's gothel she's glamorous she's um, uh, magical mm. but yeah and then the beldam just gets you know gradually more threatening as uh, as she goes along and, and so there's actually there's three distinct puppets where you've got the um like the super cute version of um mother mel and then you've got the like long tall screeching terrifying creature beldam and then they go the whole hog by making her like this cracked porcelain spider woman and actually, during the um, confrontation at the end, when she's like toppling down on top of Coraline, screaming, and the cat's just clawed her eyes off, I'm thinking of this like horrible beast without eyes going yeah! with spindly long arms falling down. I'm like, that's the alien queen. That's a twisted matriarch. This all consuming mother who, that rather than nourishing her child will devour it. It's a nightmare. And somehow Terry Hatcher manages all three with distinction across the way. In fact, one, two, three, four. 
because Mel and then fake other mother Mel and then screeching Beldum and then very quiet and threatening. You're wrong, Coraline. Also, I really like the way they dressed her butt when she's uh, other mother. Just like that little... It's, it's kind of an abdomen-y, like, sort of like... It's got this, uh, you know, beautiful little points on the um, jacket dress that she's wearing. Just kind of accentuating the butt, but at the same time it's hinting that she's a spider under there. I love that. There, there is a, a natural version of the devouring mother, though, which this is very much not. The idea that she is... She brings death to things that are supposed to die. She's kind of the natural turn of, of um, how things are meant to go. The Beldam is much more like um, uh, how the losers describe it, hmm. that it might be part of the natural order, but it's not a natural order that they understand. It consumes children, and that's not right in their, their world, their perception of events. Um, and again, spider. Only she's not made of chicken wire. <laughs> yeah, no, this one's uh, actually a good effect at the end. And it's really intriguing, actually, that there's this this conception of the spider as like the ultimate um, devouring mother. Devouring it's the opposite for it's spiders. Exactly, spiders it's give Charlotte birth to from their Charlotte's children. Web. Oh shit! Dakota Fanning was in Charlotte's Web as well, and also Miss Spider in uh, um, Henry Selick's James and Giant Peach. Yeah. The, Spiders uh, get a really bad rep. Which is exactly what she said. Mm. Susan Sarandon, yeah. who said that uh, Hillary Clinton was uh, about the same as Donald Trump. Good, good for you, Susan Sarandon. You uh, you happy right now? Yeah. You happy that, that Hillary Clinton lost? Yep. Hmm? 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 Happy that Donald Trump is running the country? Hmm? 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 Got some films coming out? Oh, I look forward to seeing them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear me. <sighs> it's, it's almost like a take on Cthulhu. Yes, oh, Susan Sarandon oh. is a take on Cthulhu. Eight-legged hell beasts was what I had in mind. <laughs> <laughs> and we refer to our other, earlier comment. Uh, anyway. There's a, a really neat turnabout in this as well. When uh, Cora um, wakes up, goes to bed in the good, in the, 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 the nice fake pretend house... Uh, and then wakes up in her regular house. She goes to bed in a really sort of lovely four-poster, and then she wakes up. It's the same bed, but she's in a sleeping bag on, like, a bare a mattress blanket. with a little bit of a, a wool blanket underneath, but it's not, like, proper bed clothes. They are, they've only just moved to the house, and no one's got their stuff together yet. Mm, yeah. It's, um, it's a really, again... There's all this shorthand around there just to tell you visual stuff, which again like, works perfectly when you've only got limited minutes and each movement takes goddamn ages. Mm. It makes sense for you to make these sets this sumptuous and th the storytelling visually this um, sharp, mm. I suppose. Is the, is and and Inside Out takes a lot of cues from this. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the surface story of the girl who's just moved home and is trying to get to grips with the idea of... of transitioning between being a child and, and starting to move towards being an adult. Mm -hmm. But then the her inner life is this wildly colourful, um, incredibly inventive world that 
gives this impression of emotional intensity without really having to try too hard. It does it in a very visual way. Um, and uh, one thing I particularly loved is there's a there's a scene towards the end, um, which, I mean, if you don't want me to talk about this just yet, then do say so. Is that so, or Coraline? Coraline. Oh, let's talk about Coraline any bits. Okay. Um, We've the, jumped about already, so. Fair enough. Okay, so towards the end, um, there's a sort of a dreamlike sequence with the um, Victorian children where she she's against a background of what is effectively Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. And it it kind of immediately made me think of this, this idea of, um, in, in van Gogh's case, it was a sort of a, a a combination of, of family circumstances and, and mental illness. Um, but the idea that this rich, incredibly intense, incredibly and colourful, tasty, vivid inner life cannot match the grey, dull, mundanity. everyday mundanity of, yeah. of the outside world. Now, there is a happy ending in Coraline because she manages to find ways to reconcile the two. And she brings intense pink lemonade into the world. She encourages her parents to get bright red tulips to plant in the garden. You know, she's she's trying to get some of that inner intensity out into the world. Ultimately, Van Gogh's end was that he couldn't do that. And so he couldn't carry on living in the world that didn't match his interior. Um, and Inside Out sort of has that same idea of you, you bring those inner emotions outside because if you keep them all locked up, then your inner will never match the outer and that is what kills people. The turnabout comes when she realises that she needs to escape the Beldarm and uh, goes to, to back into her good bedroom and buries herself in the bedclothes and then sleeps for a bit and then wakes up and goes, Mom, Dad, and she hasn't left. It's a really nice, like, fake-out. Like, they've, they've told the audience this is how it works. She goes to sleep in this bed, she comes back out in that one. So you are in her head. You're like, well, this makes perfect sense. And then when it gets... The rug gets pulled out from under her. It gets pulled out from under us as well. That's mm. extremely um, uh, skillful. And that's when things start to go wrong in the uh, other world. And um, she starts to meet these twisted versions of her kooky neighbours uh, who were already bizarre enough to begin with. Like, you know, it was like sitting, like wandering around the house is kind of boring. But, like, just talking to the neighbours, they, they do have quite an exotic way of uh, living which you know and, and thinking and it wouldn't have taken much and it doesn't take much in the end for Coraline to actually bring them out and out to the sun but of course it, you require sun when everything's raining and dismal and dreary and it looks like seven all the time it's really hard to see a way forwards mm. I that, that's obviously that's that's for me I am solar powered but the sun is a great unifier because people come out into it. Now, obviously, in England, you get a lot of people who are like, I hate the hot weather. The sun newspaper goes, few water scorcher if we go up above 20 degrees. What what throws me, though, right, um, is that the, the weather in this country for a significant portion of the year is dismal and sodden and keeps people indoors and stops them really going out into a nice environment to interact with each other and the English people who migrated to America 
hundreds of years ago obviously took that attitude of with them that's that's an, an exact word that is the attitude in england sometimes with a lot of people but i don't what do you think of the get, weather i don't get why we don't have the thing that they have in scandinavian countries of okay well outside is shit and my even kill you so let's make inside cozy and homey and make everybody want to come in here and be close with each other why don't we have that can we have that please i have a note here on the um uh, mango milkshake scene when they've got this absurdly catered for um other mother meal like it's like the, the this is just the first one with the, the roast chicken. There's one that she just leaves out for Cora and doesn't even stick around to watch her eat. It's just like hot dogs and pepperoni pizza and 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 things. It's it's ridiculous to give to to one kid. And it's 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 insane that Cora doesn't start to go something's Coraline doesn't start to go something's extremely weird here, especially when. The parents go, oh, mud, we love mud. We love to go outside and play hide-and-seek in the rain and the mud. We love mud facials, mud baths, mud pies. Right. No parent in the history of the world likes making mud pies. I, I mean, you know, I, ride in if you do like it, folks, but you're, in a, you're a minority in a minority in a minority in that situation. We were in a pub in the garden eating and our kid was off playing on the climbing frames and two other kids came along and went alright whose bottle of water is that and we're like ours and it was just a bottle of water we put on the, the uh, uh, step beside us and that automatically that conversation initiated suddenly we were friends with these strange children and these kids like held up handfuls of mud and went we've been making mud pies and I was like nice I think they said that the mud pies had snot in them or something yeah something like that I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up but... cheers for that kid mm -hmm. No parent goes, oh, let's make mud pies. <laughs> That's insane. And Cora should have immediately thought, this is weird. Uh, speaking of things that just don't make any sense, back in the real world, these loony old ladies are saying, you know, this is Taffy from Brighton, best in the world, you know. And it's like, no, okay, right. The best taffy in the world is not from Brighton. They make we don't have taffy in, in England, England at, at all. all. We have rock in Brighton. It's just hard sugar. That's all they do. Roll. It's not just hard sugar. It's, it's got flavoured with peppermint. It it's got stripy colours. And it says the word they Brighton all the way through. In it. It's peppermint it's awesome. flavoured. But it's not taffy. I love rock. Saltwater taffy is where it's at and I wish you could get it in Brighton but you can't. It kind of looks like taffy. That's the weird thing. It does look a bit like taffy if, if you get it in pieces. But Jennifer but Saunders or Dawn it's, it's I think it was Dawn French said that and it's like she would know. You know. You don't get taffy in That's Brighton. But their taffy is hard because it's all in these bowls and it's gone solid. Oh, good point. So, yeah, I suppose it is. It, it is rock. It has They're become just calling rock. it taffy. Yeah, okay. Oh, maybe it. Maybe they are insane. Maybe they've just like bought, <laughs> bought all this rock that was originally rock from Brighton. Mm. Maybe that was the point. Maybe that was how they got it through customs. Yeah. What is this? Oh, that's, um, that's taffy. taffy. Yes, taffy. That'll do. <laughs> yes, that should stick. <laughs> From and 1921. It does to the well, that's how they're get it through customs. Because in 1921, there was no customs. Yes, there was. You aren't allowed to bring this giraffe from Newt Africa. Newt Scamander had to convince a customs officer to let oh, him bring his suitcase. Good in. point. In that documentary, Fantastic Beasts, yes, where exactly. the fun. <laughs>
the bay. So if you go swimming with bow-legged women, I might steal your weak heart away. A big bottom sea which may bob through the waves and hope to lead sailors astray. But a true ocean goddess must fill out her bodice to present an alluring display. Like the fishes, did I hear a banshee? Your sea green with envy. This mermaid, enchantress, no eye but of Venus, will send sailors so big and As well as Riley in, because uh, um, I noted uh, it felt like Inside Out, mm. Chihiro in Spirited Away. Yeah. Another kid who didn't want to leave school and uh, is is forced to um, leave her school friends behind. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and that's got echoes of Alice in Wonderland as well. Yeah, as does Ophelia from Pan's Labyrinth, forced to leave everything behind and go live with a Nazi. Mm. And uh, the kids from Jumanji and Spiderwick Chronicles can, can you probably... See, can you see why I, I respond quite strongly to a lot of these stories? Why? Are you, were you forced to go and live with a Nazi? Oh, I know you were... No. No, it's the moving around element. Yeah, it's the having to leave everything behind and <laughs> come to a new school. Exactly. Yeah. Although in the cases of these children, it's usually like, this is the one big move that's ever happened and it really freaks them out. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't have any sense of um, permanence anymore. Yeah. Also, side note, when YB brings that Coraline doll that he found in his grandma's trunk, and he's like, oh, hey, I got the uh, this Coraline doll. Weird, huh? And Coraline goes, yeah, that's weird. You're weird, YB. She doesn't go, this is really weird. Mm. You don't give me a voodoo doll as a present, and I'm not believing for a second that this you just found this in your grandma's trunk. This is like, I'm never talking to you again, weird. Mm, yeah. I mean, you could kind of go with the idea of, oh, look, I found this doll. It happens to have blue hair and it made me think a little bit of you. But it's wearing The fact her that clothes. it's wearing the exact outfit she's wearing at that precise moment. So she should have said, did you contact that one woman in the world who makes dolls clothes? Yeah. Um... But the doll is the doll's the temptation. The doll is the thing that's supposed to um, strike her curiosity and get her to come through the little door into Looking Glass World. Mm. When the um, the sisters are doing their routine and they've they've torn their way out of their um, older bodies and they're now twirling through the air, which is a really uncanny, unnerving sequence. They're singing um, a soliloquy from Hamlet. Uh, the um, I have of late. But wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof, fretted with golden fire. 
why it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, no, nor woman neither. However, it's about how shitty men are, and uh, or just just mankind itself. It's also and people. It's also about depression. Yeah. It's about the vivid, colourful things that you could see suddenly you can't see, and there's a grey curtain over everything, mm. and everything feels awful. Even when you're looking at something that you know is wonderful, you can't see it. You can't feel it. Yeah. It's bang off again. Yeah. And uh, that's not an accident that that's in there. And it's not an accident that it's sung in a way that makes it, it seem not like its actual intentions. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But that also ties in with the idea of, of this being a world where people can be um, not necessarily how they want to be, but how they see themselves. Speaking of which, I've got a question for you. What does sewing button eyes onto yourself or having them sewn onto you signify? Uh, giving up your sight so that you can't tell what creepiness is going on. Hmm. At the same time, though, they're not blind. They're not wandering no. around feeling like they're not Jared Latoing this and, and uh, mm. uh, unable to actually see. No. But they have lost something. But the implication is that your eyes are buttoned shut. Like the idea of button it as in button your mouth or button your lip, um, don't talk about the truth that you see. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that's pretty much exactly what I was, uh, I've was. i got written down here. The um, It is turning a blind eye to the imbalance of the world in order to preserve a false paradise. Uh, now, in, this, in the case of Coraline, it's literally that I have crafted this world for you. Don't look outside it, don't look outside it, just look at this world itself, specifically. Yeah. Um, it's blinkers in this case. Yeah. But this is the province of affluent suburbs where rich people go and shut themselves away behind high walls and just button down their eyes and just let's not look at or even think about the terrible things that are going on outside. Mm. And it's controlled with terrifying strictness by a smiling overlord who only wants what's best for everyone, at least in public. But really, when you look below the surface, there's something deeply twisted about the denial of pain. Also, Hansel and Gretel, Witch in the Gingerbread House. Yeah. You actually asked me what other uh, fairy tales uh, I could find in there. That was one of them. I got Vasilisa as well. The, uh, um, I think it's a Hungarian or, or Russian tale mm. about uh, Baba Yaga. And only Baba Yaga is affected by striking ambivalence, which is uh, something that... Um, the Beldam most definitely is not. She's a malevolent force. Mm. What other fairy tales have you got? Although she does have the the appearing as an incredibly benevolent force initially. Yeah, but really she's just but really that's malevolence. all. Yeah, that's if all that was Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga would be a lot less complex. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, Baba Yaga is part of the natural order, and the Beldam yeah. is most definitely not. Yeah, no, Baba Yaga would think that Beldam is like you know. Oh no, she has to be killed. She's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, so yeah, so you've got Hansel and Gretel with the, um, the the gingerbread house references and the idea that basically this witch is going to cook you and eat you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was also there's also obviously the very heavy um, Alice in Wonderland parallels to the point yeah. where you even have a Cheshire cat. Yeah. 
We um, haven't talked about Keith David's cat before, by the way. Big inspiration for the nag in The Princess Thieves. Mm. Um, he has got, the, like, I, I love the fact that Keith David usually has a very low register to his voice, but he deliberately made it quite high sometimes to sound more feline. Um, and he seems, I, lo I love the way he seems hurt. I love the fact that he never speaks when he's in our world. He always seems mysterious. He's got this... He doesn't even meow much in the real world. He's got this he? really reassuring presence to him, mm. which I, I, I love. And I love the fact that he also gets worried at times. Like, he's like, uh-oh, something's changed here. Yeah. And, um, yeah, no, if I was going to be guided through a mystical land, I would want Keith David to do it. Indeed. He has... They do with his eyes what the Cheshire Cat does with his smile as well. Where yeah. He will be, a lot of the time, eyes very wide open, and then they'll get very narrow. And um, it it's all seems to be to emphasise the idea that even in the Beldam's world, he does not have buttons. Yeah. Yeah. He's real. He can see. He is clear seeing at all times. He never gives that up. Um, so there's that. Um, you've also got um, Cinderella. Did you pick up the Cinderella references? There's a lot of mice running around. There's mice running around. Very specifically, though. Cor Coraline has a uh, Wicked Stepmother vibe going on with her mum. She's mm. like, oh... Like, uh, like she's almost acting like her mum used to be fun, but now she isn't, mm, which yeah. suggests a kind of stepmother. Complex. She's she acts a little bit like she she's kind of oh I'm Cinderella I'm expected to unpack and do chores and oh, which I have actually heard Lyra say on occasion. It's like I'm Cinderella when I've asked her to tidy her room. <laughs> It's totally yes. not like your Cinderella. Cinderella was told to pick up her many, many toys that she barely plays with. Indeed. Because she's always on her iPod Touch. That was totally Cinderella. Yeah. Um, but specifically, it was the fact that the mice have been transformed from other things. When the cat um, catches one, it's a nice. rat it's full a of rat sand. Full of sand. Everything's full of sand. The yeah. Beldarm just fills all of these... Um, uh, what was the word? Homunculi up? Yeah. Um... Which is what they used to fill toys with before they had K-Pop. Yep. Um, and um, also the... Here's a teddy bear full of ground glass. The other father. And lead paint. Um, at the end when midnight struck and things are starting to go back to their true forms. Turns, turns into, into a, a pumpkin. pumpkin. Nice. <laughs> Originally in the book he turns into like a horrible shapeless grub. Mm. Who charges at Coraline uh, in the basement? He's like, I don't want to go for you, but the Beldam is making me. Yeah. And she snatches his eyes off and runs away because Ooh. if she ran away without snatching the eyes off, he'd give chase. Mm. Well, so he true. ends up flailing around in the dark on his on the floor, and she feels sorry for him. Oh, good lord, that's hideous. It's a hideous book. It makes you feel really creepy crawly, and it's not suitable for kids. Yeah, little kids, that is. Um, there's also it'll a, just unsettle them. Yeah, uh, there's a fleeting uh, Billy Goat's Gruff reference as well, um, to me at least, in the fact that the the Bell Dam seems like a combination of the Gingerbread House Witch and the Troll. Um, troll do roll. Uh, specifically, a reference to a a troll that appears in a Neil Gaiman short story, who lives under a bridge and catches people and says that he wants to eat their life. And eventually he does. And and it, people who have lives that they that have gone horribly wrong and they want to give them up eventually end up becoming the troll. Huh. Okay. And the the idea that uh, I think that the ghost children actually say to Coraline at one point that the uh, the bell down will eat 
her life. Her life, yeah. She, they, they, um, they signify it with the eyes, that the ghost children's uh, ghost eyes are the things that Coraline has to find in sequences that resemble a Legend of Zelda game, I might add. At that point, it's like, go find these ghost eyes in the Twilight World. Not the Twilight World, no! They say even the proudest spirit can be broken with love. And, of course, chocolate never hurts. Like what? They're cocoa beetles from Zanzibar. I want to be with my real mom and dad. I want you to let me go. Is that any way to talk to your mother? You aren't my mother. Apologize. At once, Coraline. No! I'll give you to the count of three. One. Two. Three! What are you doing? Ow, that hurts! You may come out when you've learned to be a loving daughter. Speaking of eyes, yep. what did you get from the stone? Um, I got that they were very aware that there was a seeing stone in the Spiderwick Chronicles, and they really didn't want to replicate that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so they made it triangular and made of candy, so it's definitely a different stone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Looked a little bit like the... Um... Deathly Hallows? Yes. Yes, a little bit. A little bit, 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 a little bit. One thing, there's two things actually that I really, really like about the Seeing Stone. The first is the quarrel that Miss Forcible and uh, Miss Spink have about whether it's for finding uh, lost things or whether it's for finding... It's not for finding shit. No, it's not for finding shit. Bad things. Bad things, that's it. It's good for bad things. Good no, for, no, no, it's, it's good, good for, for lost things. things. Bad things. They're great together, by the way. They delivered their lines, French and Saunders. Americans would be like, French and who? French and Saunders, British institution. Absolutely. Like... Staple of 80s comedy. Have you ever heard of Robin's Nest? They but, were actually quite subversive back in their day. Oh, yeah. They used to do movie parodies, mm. but with them in them. They had a bit more of an edge to uh, the Victoria Wood. Yes. But uh, yeah, anyway, French and Saunders were a uh, were and are a sort of a British um, uh, comedy team, and uh, it's kind of nice to see them like finish off the uh, uh, absolutely fabulous trifecta, since absolutely fabulous began as a French and Saunders routine and then spawned its own show, and they used what's the name? Joanna Lumley. Joanna Lumley as Aunt Spiker in uh, James and Jack Peach. Mm, yes. Um, the, so the stone is good for bad things and it is also good for lost things because the point is the stone lets you see what's really there. And oddly enough, when she looks through the stone, everything is all grey and mundane. Yeah. 
and therefore the things that she's actually looking for stand out. And that's the thing. That's what the real world is. A lot of it does fade into the background. The intensity and the vividness is not there. And there's a reason for that, because if there was, do you know what we'd do? We would stand in the back garden staring at a spider on a leaf forever, and we wouldn't eat, and we would die. I think you're describing being on acid. When you're on acid, yeah, things do become brighter and more significant, that's what ha- I, I have heard tell. But the reason for that is that basically all of those walls that your brain has thrown up to go okay I know that looks amazing but you can leave it ignore it it's not actually relevant to the business of staying alive when you're on acid all of those walls just drop the other fairy tale that I uh, found a correlation correlation with uh, was the true bride which if you're a fan of Jim Henson's a storyteller and who isn't that you'll notice the one with the Show lion. Hands. The one with the lion in it. Now it's just it's a recurring trope in quite a lot of, especially Eastern European fairy tales and um, folklore, of a person, usually a girl of virtue or a, a seventh son or a third brother, always the youngest, um, being given impossible tasks to do three nights in a row. Like there's a Rumpelstiltskin one in there as well. But the true bride has got to drain an entire lake and she's like I don't know how I can do this and she gets help from a lion a big cat who helps her out by drinking the whole lake and um, there's various other things she has to do but basically this lion comes along and helps her out each time much like the cat does when she has her three trials Mm, yes Vasilisa as well has the three trials Um, but that again is um, uh, do you know what that kind of speaks of it gets easier Every, every day, day, but you've got to do, it, to do it every day. It's just that in a story, you can't show it every day, so this is why they do it three times, mm. so that you can see that it is a repetition, but it doesn't go on forever. Um, but anyway, the so the stone, um, the other thing I really liked is when the bell dam burns it. Yeah, because it melts it's, like candy. Yes, however, it's revenge, because Coraline burned her doll. Yes. And the doll is how the bell dam sees, and the seeing stone is how Coraline sees. Uh, specifically how the Beldam sees into Coraline's world and how Coraline sees into the Beldam's world. Or indeed any world. Basically, she keeps reconstructing the same doll. She has to make that same one Coraline doll into a double doll of her parents. And Coraline's just cut that off. Mm. Yeah. Do you know how old that doll was, effectively? The original origins of that doll? Um, Also, I I found that the... um, the, the, the Beldam keeps pushing around other father all the time and like he has to answer to her there is a kernel of truth in there about how much of a pushover her real dad is relative to Mel um, Charlie is the name of the, the, the guy she's like you know do you you know you the real Charlie Jones uh, needs his pages edited and she's quite haughty with him and um, he's very much compliant. And so I think that's, you know, if you can interpret everything that Cora goes through as being actually in her head, she's kind of working through the idea that, Coraline, sorry, I just keep abbreviating it. Um, she's kind of working through the anxiety over the fact that her father is not very assertive and just thinking, is this okay? I guess it kind of has to be. He's a, he's, a, he's a good guy underneath and there are other things than just being assertive. And of course, in the, in the book, 
he shows his love to her with self-sacrifice, which mm. is lovely. They, there is <clears throat> um, an implication that Charlie is a lot more hands-on as a father than Mel is as a mother. He's the one who plays with her with the squid yeah. at the end. Um, and it's it's almost, it's not quite a tickle fight, but you can see how when she was a little bit younger, that might have been... Um, a way that they show their affection towards each mm. other. I can't imagine her playing that way with Mel much. So, from the looks of it, like her father was really on point when she was younger. Maybe her mother was off doing other stuff, and um, or, or was around but quite distant. Mm. And then her father relationship has kind of waned a bit as she's gotten older, and she has nowhere to really go because Mel's making her be a grown-up, which is boring. Mm. Yeah, but that—I mean—that's a very common thing. Fathers pulling back from their relationship with their daughters as they get older, yeah. basically because they don't know how to handle the fact that their daughter is becoming an adult. It's—it's mm. it's almost like it's fine when they're little, but I don't know how to treat a young lady. And rather than try and work it out or work out with their daughter how to proceed with that relationship, it's easier to just pull back and cut it off, mm. which can leave a lot of girls extremely confused around a particularly sensitive point in their life. Which happens to then inform on their every single male-female relationship. Uh-huh. Quite a few of their female relationships as well. Yeah. Especially if their conclusion is, basically, my dad stopped playing with me because my mum's too bossy. Yeah. The... Significant differences between um, her real mother and the other mother mm -hmm. as well um, are kind of a very clear way of outlining the difference between um, a, a temporarily neglectful parent who is distracted or busy um, on, a, on a relatively short-term basis <clears throat> and a consistently abusive parent. There are, because obviously there are negative elements to having neglectful parents, and obviously when children are very, very small, neglectful parents can be fatal. But as they get older, parents who are a little bit more drawn back are a lot less potentially harmful than a constantly attentive, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, pokey pokey, upsettingly invasive parents. Please don't do that again. Sorry. <laughs> she was poking me hard there. Um, I apologise. I I, I, and I realise actually now having done it that none of that is going to come across in the podcast so it was totally pointless so I do apologise. It will come across through me. <laughs> I'm flinching at this point. She was clawing at me with bell down hands. Sorry. Um, oh, uh, I noted in the garden that the, there were a hell of a lot of carnivorous plants. There were pitcher plants with like little frogs in them. Um, pitcher plants, for those who need a little refresher on biology, they're like these little bell jar seed pod type things with little flaps at the top. And they've got a sticky honey-like sap on the inside. And the fly sort of flies in and goes, ooh, sap, I like that. St you know, tries to take a little bit of the sugar water in there, but finds it can't get out because the sides are really, really slippery. And the uh, the sugar water is also like enzymes and stomach acid. So the, the bell jar like shuts its little trap and goes, um, nom, 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 nom. And then you know, slowly digested over a thousand years. Uh, the... Uh, as we said on the Return of the Jedi podcast all those years ago, the Sarlacc is in fact a plant. 
Indeed. Um, there's also a lot of like uh, Venus flytrap type things, which have like big, wide open, pink, inviting mouths, and then snap shut and then and eat the insects. These are basically plants that exist in nature to be tempting and inviting, and then feed on you. Mm-hmm. It's all messages to Coraline saying. This is literally get what out, get 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 out. Yeah, Coraline could just have been called Get Out, actually. <laughs> also, um, regarding her, her connection with her father, did you notice when she's in the garden and she's frightened, she sings her father's uh, My Twitchy Witchy Girl? My Twitchy Witchy Girl, I think you are so nice. I feed you bowls of porridge and I feed you bowls of ice. Cream. Yes, that's a that's a song in the book, and she sings it at that exact point. But uh, he sings it earlier in the film in a deleted scene when making that disgusting casserole. He does sing it a little bit in the film. Oh, he does. There's a line. Oh, cool, cool. And it is when he's serving the casserole. It's just it's a longer scene originally. And it's also it's it's lovely when um, Coraline is on her own and she, her parents have gone. She goes to the car and uh, finds her mother's flip phone, and it's got condensation on it just to show how long this thing's been sitting in a cold car. That's wonderful attention to detail. They wouldn't do that in a live-action film. They certainly, uh, you know, it's not a standard for uh, animation. So it's just like that, that that extra mile that Laika go to. And the, uh, you know, slightly more overt sign that they've been gone for a long time is that the meat uh, and the fruit that are in the grocery bags has gone rotten. Mm. Yeah, um, I was trying to work out actually, and I think we would we kind of touched on this in a conversation the other day. Why it is that animation is often better at conveying um, interior life and thoughts and feelings than straight live action, particularly live action drama. I think I hit upon um, it in that live action drama, everything's in the script, and in animation, you've got to get as much done with every frame as possible. Because every additional frame takes ages. Yes, and that also um, is uh, the the other. It's not always the case. There's a lot of very expressive visual storytelling. But yeah, with live but action, makes you can them, have people say stuff. Yeah, it makes them very visual. Um, but the other end of that is everything's intentional. Nothing happens in an animation by accident. Yeah, and Let's a get stop, that cat out of here. A stop motion <laughs> animation. It's even more obvious that everything is intentional because you film 10 seconds of stuff that you probably aren't going to need in the film that takes weeks each animator is is there for for ages each time exactly so the amount of effort that people are putting into this it damn well better mean something Hmm. travis knight by the way the director of uh uh, kubo and the two strings uh was uh, cut his teeth uh, here i'm assuming he'd done other stuff before this but uh, he was one of the key animators. His name is uh, first mentioned. So major, major thanks to, to this film for putting Travis Knight in his rightful position at uh, Leica. Um Speaking of Coraline having, of there being the three tasks, by the way, yep. um, did you identify the three tasks that she has to um, do to get the eyes? The first one, she has to accept help. Yes. Okay? The pumpkin father gives her the first eye. Pretty much, yeah. Like he says, I don't want to hurt you. Here's the thing. Yeah. Okay. The second is she has to fight. The Candy Sisters hang on to that ring. She has to be brave and she has to fight. Absolutely. And the third is she has to resist despair because she doesn't get the eye until after 
Mr. Babinski has basically tried to convince her what's the point in even trying. She's collapsed in the garden and she has to not allow it to swallow mm. her. And then the cat brings her the eye because the rats run off with it. And Beldam cheats all the time. Mm. Yeah. But again, those are tasks that you can apply to getting through depression. Yeah. So, you're back. And you brought vermin with you? No. I... I brought a friend. You know I love you. Hmm. You have a very funny way of showing it. So, where are they? The ghost eyes. <sighs> Hold on. We aren't finished yet, are we? No, I suppose not. After all, you still need to find your old parents, don't you? Too bad you won't have this. Be clever, miss. Even if you win, she'll never let you go. I already know where you've hidden them. Hmm. Well, produce them. They're behind that door. Oh, they are, are they? heartwarming when uh, Cora is uh, alone. This is uh, when her parents are absent from the house. She makes little pretend parents to, to just to, um, to snuggle up with simply because she now realises that they're not there. And in the book, she actually shouts at the beldam, of course you couldn't get me to stay here with you by giving me what I want. No one wants what they want. Not really. It's very on the nose, but it, it, it is pretty succinct in terms of the fact that Coraline has grown to the point where she realises that um, what you want, you can't have, and what you need, you have anyway. Nice. What a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. And what do you think you're doing? Well, I'm getting out of here. That's what I'm doing. Huh? Something's wrong. Shouldn't the old well be here? Nothing out here. It's the empty part of this world. She only made what she knew would impress you. But why? Why does she want me? 
She wants something to love, I think. Something that isn't her. Or maybe she just loves something to eat. Eat? That's ridiculous. Mothers don't eat daughters. I don't know. How do you taste? <laughs> away from something and still come back to it. Walk around the world. Small world. Hang on. Stop! He's one of the circus mice! <gasps> I don't like rats at the best of but this one was sounding an alarm. Good kitty. Oh, one final point that I noticed was that her getting stuff done outfit, um, like when she's gonna take the fight to the Beldam, it still has its basis in her pajamas. Like, so she's not putting on like um, the black jeans and starry sweater which her, the Beldam gave her uh, is uh, her um, like uh, as an action outfit she's putting on pajamas plus a gilet and a hat and it's you know she's got secateurs from the garden it fuses dreaming and imagination with logic and practicality she sort of embraces both worlds yeah, also, in order to be master of both the tools that she brings with her have to be from her world she can't take the bell dam down with her own yeah stuff and one final thing, when she throws her shoes at YB, and YB runs away saying, you're crazy. Apparently in the Middle East, throwing your shoes at someone is a terrible, terrible insult. It's like the worst thing you can possibly do. So apparently that did not go down at all well there, and they hadn't expected that. Oh, God. Okay. So, yeah. So do culture checks. Yeah, probably a good idea. Because you never know when something's going to crop up like but that. But at the same time, like, cult, like... They've got so much to put into films. At some, like, somewhere along, in some country, wearing a big fish's head on top of your head is a, a sin. Right. <laughs> when I say do culture checks, I don't necessarily mean before you make the movie and make sure you trim out everything that could possibly be of offence to anybody. Yeah. But before you release the movie in a country that you know very may contain of scenes the, of shoe throwing <laughs> of the culture of it might be an idea to run it past a small focus group of sympathetic people mm. who can say you might want to cut out the bit with the shoe throwing I love the idea that kids in Iraq could watch Coraline and actually be able to relate to, to that and that's a, that's a unifying idea that kids in Iraq could be bored with their parents and then appreciate them a little well, bit more of course they could <laughs> <laughs> Kids on the moon can be bored with their parents. Do the Russians love their children too, though? We need to ask Do they? Sting. We have to ask this question. <laughs> um, a couple of other tiny little bits from the end. Um, when uh, YB drops the rock on the needle hand, it made me think of the, uh, the Hydra. The yeah. fact that the Hydra is ultimately defeated. Once they've cut off all the heads and realised that's not going to help, um, it's dropping a rock on it that, that does it in. Mm -hmm. Um... Uh, well, holding it up to the sunlight, obviously, so that you could see it, and then dropping a rock on the last head. Um, the uh, the tail end of the movie, YB and Coraline, throughout the earlier parts of the film, have never called each other by their proper names. Mm. And at the very end, they do. 
and that's kind of a, a, a sort of a seeing each other for who they are actually presenting themselves as, which I thought was really sweet. Yeah. Um, and you have this lovely little sort of end creepiness where the clouds part over the moon and it's like two skeletal hands doing yes. that. I also noticed that when the lightning strikes just after uh, Coraline says rain, after the uh, other mother says we're going to go out and play in the rain, uh, lightning strikes and it starts to rain, the lightning looks like that skeletal hand. Yeah, the hands are a really big um, visual cue in this. Coraline wanting the gloves and her sort of constantly doing that with her hands. She has nail varnish on Mm. um, to draw attention to the shape of her hands. I also kind of love the fact that the Beldam wasn't killed. She's Mm. still there, lurking. She's just down a well, looking up at a starry Starry sky. Well, no, that's that's the hand. The real, the Beldam, the rest of her is behind that door Mm. in Coraline's house, pounding on it. And pounding on it. One presumes that the, the Beldam has some kind of sight through that hand, though. Yes. So she's got a little bit of a window into this world. And when it pulls back over the garden, this might just be me, I might have been looking at it wrong, but I thought the, the garden from a distance had the shape of the Beldam's head. Yeah. I think it's it, it's meant to uh, look like Coraline, but it certainly still has that kind of... There's a relationship between their head shapes and their hair shapes mm. in there. Um, but that, again, in a way, almost emphasises this idea that you bring a little bit of that interior world out into the real world, and that's what helps you keep going. Mm. Apparently, Dakota Fanning did a lot of her recording for Coraline whilst doing other movies. She went, she came in, she did some recording, she went off, did another movie, came in, and her voice was changing throughout it. So he, they had to keep finding like this Midwestern accent for her to fix on, and then like re-record some of the lines that now sounded too young. And then later, her sister Elle Fanning was in Box Trolls. Oh, nice! Of course, yeah. I like that. That's, that's lovely. The Neon Demon herself. And finally, let's just briefly mention the score because we're going to finish on the uh, end credits music by uh, Bruno Cooley. It is a very French uh, uh, soundtrack. The, uh, the score. Don't, don't cast it. It is very French. <laughs> it, it has a French choir singing nonsense French No, I'm not rolling words. my eyes at that. I'm rolling my eyes at your accent. Why do you think <laughs> I have, have this outrageous accent? <laughs> but... At the same time, it, it gives Coraline this wonderful lightness and this, this um, like there's, there's you know there's harp in there, and um, it's got kind of like a little water droppy feel to it, but it's it's spooky and it's got this kind of wind feel at the beginning specifically, and it's got a lot of vocalization throughout it, and it's it's a wonderful score to listen to I recommend people actually buy the score as well mm. This is I don't do this often I'd say that with Blade Runner as well that is, that's a total straight away buy um, uh, Lady in the Water I talked about so much last week um, uh, it's a you know, total buy but uh, yeah I mean for someone who appreciates soundtracks as much as I do I barely talk about them and this it's so instrumental to the film it's so important to its tone that if it had been a Danny Elfman soundtrack of boom, 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 it would have had a completely different feel to it. It really would, yeah. And Nightmare does not have that mystical, enticing ambience to it that this does. Also, speaking of the soundtrack, 
if you are a collector of vinyl, um, mm. go mm. and have a look at Leica's merchandise shop. Merchandise. They have the album versions of the soundtracks for all four of their movies on the most gorgeous vinyl discs I have ever seen. But yeah, the vinyl's uh, like $35 for uh, for the Kubo one. Mm, which, if you're into vinyl, I, I mm. can see people wanting to invest in that. Uh, the Coraline one, also $35. I would also say art books. The Coraline art book is now £80, I think. Do they not still have it on the uh, Leica shop? I saw the Kubo one there, but obviously that's quite recent. Oh no, it's £103. Yeah, no, this was... This is now out of print. Here's the thing, folks. Art books are limited. They will be out around about the time the film comes out, or if it's released years after the film, they'll be out for a limited time. There is no point constantly repressing and repressing these books. They sell to the people who love the film, and that's it. They sit on the shelves long enough to sell, and then they're done. And the art- Kubo and the Two Strings art book is still available. Get that now while you can. You can get it on... Kindle, I got it recently on Kindle. I was just about to say, but it doesn't compare. Books on Kindle are not the same. It doesn't. And I'm speaking here as somebody who loves e-books. I love e-readers. I think they're fantastic. But for for art books, it's not the same. With one slight exception, the making of Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi have the digital versions. They have periodically throughout little interviews with George Lucas and company that you just tap when you're reading them on your iPad and they play. If you've got headphones in, it'll be George Lucas talking to you for a few minutes about something and it's like, now that is how to read a book. That's kind of a nice touch, like a fully interactive type. All art books should be digitised anyway, because once they become unavailable, you know, they become lost to future generations who might want to study them. Ooh, twelve fifty for a used copy of The Art of Kubo and the Two Strings. Sold. Next week, we get ready for Halloween with a zombie-filled exploration of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and Land of the Dead. If you want to burn up on staying alive during zombie attacks, check out our shows on The Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z by Max Brooks, which are available on the School of Everything Else archive. That is a separate, entirely free podcast feed you can find on iTunes with everything non-movie related that we've released in chronological order. And a huge thank you to our special $15 Patreon sponsors this month. That's Joel Robinson, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And to everyone who's ever thought about commissioning a podcast... The School of Movies Early 2018 commissions are now on. The window is now open for you guys to secure a show for early next year. We will endeavour to tackle five or six of the suggestions that are the most appealing or challenging and either subjects that we would never have covered, you can bring those into being, or subjects that we would have taken potentially years to get to. You can get those put to the front of the queue. Sharon and I have been planning something pretty big and it's going to take a large bite out of my remaining savings so right now any boosting to our funds is going to be a huge help and for that reason just this one time i am taking the gloves off and saying that tv is negotiable video games are negotiable and even 
can't believe I'm going to say this. Anime is negotiable. Go easy on me, please. Don't say whole 800 episode TV seasons. Don't say Dragon Ball Z. So get in touch via Twitter at School of Movies, via email, gonzoplanet at gmail.com, or message me on Patreon. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's out. Baby swallowing wood